0: Well, I think it's fair to say that when it comes to wisdom, you can put most people into one of two categories. Those who seek wisdom and those who think they are already wise enough. I'm reminded of Proverbs twenty-six, twelve, which says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. On the assumption that you'd like more wisdom, I'd like to offer three principles from Scripture for seeking it. And yes, it might be a wise thing to do to jot these down. First principle Search for wisdom. In the right place. Search for wisdom in the right place. In 1933, during the Great Depression, 34 influential thinkers drafted and signed what they called the Humanist Manifesto. They called themselves religious humanists because. By faith, they claimed that man is the highest object of adoration and source of ethical standards. Among other things, that manifesto states, the time has come for widespread recognition of the radical changes in religious beliefs throughout the modern world. The time has passed for mere revision of traditional attitudes Science and economic change have disrupted the old beliefs. Religions the world over are under the necessity of coming to terms with the new conditions created by a vastly increased knowledge and experience. In every field of human activity, the vital movement is now in the direction of a candid and explicit humanism. In order that religious humanism may be better understood, we, the undersigned, desire to make certain affirmations, which we believe the facts of our contemporary life demonstrate. And so the first of their resolutions is that religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Well, uh, side note here. Uh, Any philosophy of life has to start with assumptions about origins. This man-centered religion foolishly denies that we're created by God because if we're created, that would mean that we're accountable to our creator and they can't abide that. Their second point was, quote, Humanism believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as a result of a continuous process. That takes more faith than I have. Their fifth point, I skipped a few here, is that humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human values. <clears throat> Obviously, they say, humanism does not deny the possibility of realities as yet undiscovered, but it does insist that the way to determine the existence and value of any and all realities is by means of intelligent inquiry and by the assessment of their relations to human needs. Religion, they wrote, must formulate its hopes And plans in the light of the scientific spirit and method. In other words, man is the source of wisdom ruling out all divine revelation. They continued Man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams, and that he has within himself the power of its achievement. Well, in, after a few more decades of experience, in 1973, they came out with the Humanist Manifesto 2 to kind of update things. In that, they said, it is 40 years since Humanist, humanist Manifesto 1 appeared, and events since then make that earlier statement seem far too optimistic. Nazism has shown the depths of brutality of which human humanity is capable. Other totalitarian regimes have suppressed human rights without ending poverty. Science has sometimes brought evil as well as good. Recent decades have shown that inhuman wars can be made in the name of peace. The beginnings of police states, even in democratic societies, widespread government espionage, and other abuses of power by military, political, and industrial elites, and the continuance of unyielding racism, all present a different and difficult social outlook. So you may be thinking, ah, they've concluded that man is by nature sinful and in need of being subject to absolute morals, right? Afraid not. They continued, as we approach the 21st century, however, an affirmative and hopeful vision is needed. Faith, commensurate with advancing knowledge, is also necessary. In the choice between despair and hope, humanists respond in this Humanist Manifesto too with a positive declaration for times of uncertainty. And they continued, as in 1933... Humanists still believe that traditional theism, in other words, a belief in God, especially faith in the prayer-hearing God, assumed to live and care for persons, to hear and understand their prayers, and to be able to do something about them, is an unproved and outmoded faith. Salvationism, based on mere affirmation, they say, still appears as harmful and diverting people with false hopes of heaven hereafter. Reasonable minds look to other means for survival. And they concluded with, by saying, We affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. Ethics stems from human need and interest. In other words, humans decide what is right to do. But that's exactly what Hitler did. Well, Scripture reveals that the wisdom of man is corrupt. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. So there's a lot of well-educated fools. The passage I read from earlier in Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, creation, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their, ex- in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened professing to be wise, they became fools, foolish wise men, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what's the lesson here? God is the source of wisdom. James 1.5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him." So our first principle is to search for wisdom in the right place from God. The second principle is to search for wisdom with the right faith. Search for wisdom with the right faith. James 1 continues after it says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. It says, but he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, For that man ought not to expect he will receive anything anything from the Lord, being double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Now, what does it mean to ask for wisdom while doubting? Well, it could mean that you're doubting God's wisdom is unconditionally always true, right, and best. Maybe you're shopping around for wisdom, and among the places you go is God, but you're not really sure it's inherently true, right, and best. Maybe you're asking for God's opinion, which we reserve the right to reject if it conflicts with our wisdom. That would be asking with doubt. God has clearly revealed his wisdom in the pages of Scripture. Now, studying the Bible will teach us God's wisdom, but not everyone who studies the Bible does so with faith. About 13 years ago, CNN, that bastion of godly wisdom, right? CNN posted an online article prompted by the release of the movie Angels and Demons. Maybe you saw that movie. And the article was entitled former fundamentalist debunks the Bible. And it featured, it was referring to Professor Bart Ehrman, who was the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, whom they referred to as a superstar in the publishing world. As a leading proponent of the historical critical method of Bible interpretation, which has been standard fare in liberal, that is, unbelieving seminaries for 200 years or so, Uh, they quoted from a book he wrote in which he said, the Bible is filled with discrepancies, many of them irreconcilable contradictions. Moses did not write the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not write the Gospels. The Exodus probably did not happen as described in the Old Testament. The conquest of the Promised Land is probably based on legend. The Gospels are at odds on numerous points and contain non historical material. In fact, it's hard to know whether Moses ever existed and what exactly the historical Jesus taught. He continues, the historical narratives of the Old Testament are filled with legendary fabrications, and the book of Acts in the New Testament contains historically unreliable information about the life and teachings of Paul. Many of the books of the New Testament, he writes, are pseudonymous, written not by the apostles but by later writers claiming to be apostles And the list goes on, he says. And that list, in his terms, includes denying the deity of Christ, of course. One thing I liked about this article is, like many things you see online or even in the newspaper, it highlighted some of the main points in bullet form up front so you know what you're getting into when you read it. And it had four bullets. The first one was, meet a real-life angels and demons professor. And the second one was, biblical scholar says most of the New Testament is a forgery. The third one was, scholar's work gains audience skeptical of church. And the fourth one is, the scholar's mom no longer talks to him about his books. Now there is a woman with wisdom. This distinguished professor is a clear example of someone who looks for wisdom in the right place, perhaps, the Bible, but who approaches God's words with doubt and pride rather than faith. As James 1 says, that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything, that is, any wisdom from Scripture, being double-minded, unstable in all his ways. So he, too, is a foolish wise man. So our first principle is to search for wisdom in the right place. God search for wisdom with the right faith. And our third principle is to search for wisdom with the right commitment. With the right commitment. King Solomon is the prime example in scripture of someone asking God for wisdom. What lessons can we learn from his life? If you haven't already done so, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings in the Old Testament. We'll trace some of the background that's relevant here in Solomon's case. First is his father's counsel in 1 Kings chapter 2 starting in verse 1, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. As David's time, David his father, his time drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. That is, he knew he was about to die. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the, keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke to me saying, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David gave Solomon a very clear charge. Obey God from the heart. Solomon's own experience, his own um, response to that after, in fact, he did become king is in 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. where it says, Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. Now, these high places were, were hilltop sites that were used for worship among pagans as well as um, Israelites. Uh, not a good thing. And so that exception seemed to have had some consequences, which we'll pick up on later. But 1 Kings 3 continues, The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And 2 Chronicles 1, by the way, indicates that he went there because the tabernacle and the bronze altar were there. But it continues saying that Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, ask what you wish to give me. Ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant, David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you, and you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon's desire was to have the wisdom necessary to rule God's people justly. A very good thing. At this stage, it appears that he asked for wisdom in faith and that he planned to use it appropriately. The chapter continues with God's answer in verse 10. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, Nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you. Nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there will not be among the kings like you, anyone like you, all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. And in the next chapter, chapter 4, starting with verse 29, we see a detailed description of Solomon's wisdom. Now, God gave Solomon wisdom and a very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore, limitless, in other words. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon. From all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So, God, by his overflowing grace, gave Solomon wisdom, insight, knowledge, and discernment that went far beyond human experience then or now. People far and wide marveled at it, and rightly so. Perhaps that went to his head, though, and he became proud. For what we see is that he didn't obey God as David, his father, had exhorted him. In his book, Practicing Proverbs, Proverbs, Wise Living for Foolish Times, Richard Mayhew summarizes four major areas in which Solomon, who, apart from Christ, was the wisest man who ever lived, was nonetheless extremely foolish. Four major areas. And the first one is misdirected wisdom. So at this point, if you would turn with me to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, which is right after the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, Solomon says of himself, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. Vanity means it's a, just a vapor or a breath. It's a passing thing with no substance to it. All is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is a striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. And in Ecclesiastes 2, the next chapter, starting in verse 12, he writes, So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done before? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I know that one fate befalls them all. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I become extremely wise? So he admits to not having applied his wisdom appropriately. But he continues. So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. It doesn't last, right? Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity, he writes. Therefore I completely despaired of the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun. Solomon misdirected the wisdom that God had graciously given him. He directed it toward man-centered concerns and not toward God-centered truth. And it amounted to nothing. At least he noticed that. So he misdirected wisdom but secondly he misused wealth that's his second error major error he misused wealth back to Ecclesiastes 2 beginning in verse 1 I said to myself Solomon speaking here come now I will test you with pleasure so enjoy yourself and behold it too was futility, the same word as vanity. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine, and my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives i enlarged my works i built houses for myself i planted vineyards for myself i made gardens and parks for myself and i planted them and in, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees i made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem, and I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus, I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor. Which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Solomon misused the wealth that God had graciously given him. He used it for his own self gratification rather than for God's glory. You may have noticed that he said, for myself, six times. He was wise enough to conclude afterwards that it amounted to nothing, just passes away. But he apparently wasn't wise enough to have understood that at the outset. So maybe God included his experience for our benefit, right? Well, his third major downfall was multiplied women. First king's 3 if you've got your finger back in 1 Kings 3. If not, don't worry, I'll read it. 1 Kings, 1 Kings 3, verse 1. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 3. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after other gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had, get this, 700 wives, princesses, And 300 concubines. You do the math, there's a thousand in his harem. And it says, his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. Back in Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, beginning with verse 26, Solomon writes, And I discovered, apparently by personal experience, more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape her, but the sinner will be captured by her. He confesses his own sin, but he also says, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking but have not found, I have found one man, and possibly he's referring to himself, among a thousand, like his thousand women, but I have not found a woman among all these. In other words, a truly godly, God-fearing woman. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices." In Nehemiah 13, we see some reflection back on Solomon's experience here, where in verse 20, beginning in verse 23, it says, in those days, I also saw the Jews had married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, all these foreign women. And so Nehemiah writes, so I contended with them, with the people of Jerusalem. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Among many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made a king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Solomon multiplied the women whom he took for his own self-gratification, disobeying God's specific commands, and as God pointed out, even in advance, they caused him to sin in many ways. The primary one is his fourth downfall, and that is mixed worship. Back in First Kings 11, beginning in verse 1, It says, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as his father David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So it continues here. Uh, The Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Solomon abandoned the one true God and followed his many wives into the worship of false gods, which ought to be raising in our minds, how could someone so wise and having sought for wisdom in the right place with the right faith do that, particularly since he was warned by both his father, David, and by God himself. Well, he apparently was conditioned early in his life, perhaps by David's bad example, particularly with Solomon's own mother, Bathsheba, to believe that one could remain true to God and still do things in a worldly, fleshly way. But in any case, that led Solomon toward multiple wives, treaties with foreign powers by marriage, worshiping at high places in addition to the tabernacle, all before he received God's gift of wisdom early in his reign. And although he apparently intended at the beginning to use the wisdom God had given him to serve God's people well, he ended up using it to serve his own selfish lusts, including a huge harem that included many foreign women who were presumably beautiful on the outside, but very ungodly on the inside. Perhaps seeking to please these women and trying to experiment with religion the way he experimented with scientific knowledge Solomon committed adultery, not just physically, but also spiritually as he went after false gods. As with anyone who commits adultery, he did what he knew was wrong. It wasn't logical, but he pursued his own lust and rationalized his behavior so that there was no sin he would not commit. Solomon didn't search for wisdom with the right commitment. A commitment to obey God's wisdom, God's word, no matter what. James four seventeen says, Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is what? Sin. As a result, Solomon, too, was a foolish wise man. Apparently, toward the end of his life, Solomon's conclusion is provided in the last verses of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, where he says, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden. Whether good or evil. Solomon concluded too late that all of his pursuits needed to spring from a healthy fear of God. Well, what are some implications for us? Well, when we ask God for his wisdom, I'm sure most of us have asked God for wisdom we must be already willing to obey it, whatever it is. We must ask in faith, not doubting. And we can learn from Solomon's bad example that we need to use the wisdom God gives us for his purposes and his glory, not our own self-exaltation. And secondly, we should use the wealth, all the resources he gives us, for his purposes and his glory, not our own self-gratification. Third, we need to be content with our own spouse, if you have one. But control your sensual appetite in any case, and the related lusts consistent with God's design for monogamous heterosexual marriage. That's God's design for our benefit and his glory. And fourth, we should worship God alone. With your whole heart. Don't serve any of the false gods that our culture worships. Now, if you haven't already done so, the first step in doing all that is to surrender to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Realizing that all of us have sinned against God. We have disobeyed Him. We have rebelled against Him. Maybe not as bad as we could conceive we could have been, but in God's eyes, everything we've done is worth nothing we have alienated ourselves from him because of his holiness. But the good news is that God has provided a solution to that problem. And that solution is relying on the perfect life of Jesus and on his death on our behalf in payment for our sins. The Apostle Paul said in Acts 17, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And Paul writes in Romans 10, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? In other words, being a foolish wise man. Or, Jesus said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Many of you are familiar with the wise words of Jim Elliot when he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, his earthly life, to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life. So are you a wise person? or a fool. Let us pray. Our Father, we are humbled by the fact that except for your grace in our lives, we too would be even more foolish than we've been. Lord, we pray that you would indeed Give us the conviction to obey your word, seek your wisdom, not our own, and seek it for your purposes, not our own, that you would be glorified and you would accomplish your purposes in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.